the more you surround yourself with people that think that your ideas are brilliant, the harder it is to keep your sense of equality. Getting discomfortable with cults. I recently finished listening to the podcast put out by the CBC called Uncover Escaping Nexium. If you don't already know, Nexium was a self help company that many people believed was a cult. And it's recently been in the news because its founder, Keith Raniere, was recently arrested. I won't go into all the details because Uncover has already done such a thorough and amazing job in their seven-part series. It chronicles the story of Sarah Edmondson. She was a high-ranking member and teacher of Nexium over the last 12 years who recently defected from the group after being branded in a sort of secret subgroup within Nexium called DOS. I've actually known about Nexium for years because it became quite popular in Vancouver, thanks in large part to Sarah Edmondson. I grew up in Vancouver. I was a child actor, as you may know from previous episodes of the podcast, and there were quite a few people that I was acquainted with in the acting community who were affiliated with Nexium or had at least taken Nexium courses. And I had always viewed Nexium as a cult. It wasn't difficult to go online and read about the founder of Nexium and his previous exploits with multi-level marketing schemes, basically pyramid schemes, and a lot of experts like Rick Ross had long labeled Nexium a cult. And I've always been fascinated by cults. I think for two reasons. On the one hand, I'm like, who are these people And what is the psychology where you're willing to give up everything, give up all your money and and your old life and your attachments in order to follow one person or, or one ideology? But at the same time, I'm also fascinated by these charismatic leaders. Like, who are these people and what are these ideas that can have that effect on other people? And I can understand the appeal. For a long time, I was convinced that I needed to be a famous filmmaker in order to prove that I had value as a human being. And I think there's a certain cultish quality to being an auteur filmmaker. There's kind of a cult of personality. People like Stanley Kubrick, the way that that people obsess over the tiniest details in his movies and are almost unquestioning in their enjoyment and championing of his films. I was kind of like that. I, I was following the cult of Stanley Kubrick. And I felt like he, well, you know, he's dead now, but while he was alive, he was this mysterious, powerful, talented artist. And you just sort of wanted to worship him and learn from him. And you see this with all kinds of leaders, like Steve Jobs is probably the perfect example. Our culture is so fascinated by him and the way he thought and the things he achieved, even though, by all accounts, he was also a giant asshole. I think part of me always coveted that kind of power, that kind of charisma, that kind of appeal. These people at the top of these organizations or these religious groups, 
that are literally worshipped by all these other humans, it just appears that they must have so much intrinsic value. They, they must literally be at the top of the hierarchy. They must be better in some way. I actually had an idea at one point to make a documentary that followed me trying to start my own cult and see if I could actually convince people to follow me. I abandoned this project when I discovered that another film with the exact same premise had just been released. It's called Kumare, and it follows a New York film student pretending to be an Indian yogic guru. And it's actually quite a brilliant and hilarious film. He does succeed in getting a handful of dedicated followers, and I don't want to ruin it, but at the end, in his own sort of indirect way, he actually comes clean and reveals that he's not who he said he was. It also brings to mind the recent documentary on Netflix, Wild Wild Country. For weeks after that documentary was released, every day someone would text me, oh my goodness, you have to watch Wild Wild Country. And I was sort of putting it off, and then one day I was on Twitter reading some interesting quote that someone had retweeted, and it was by somebody named Osho. And I was like, oh, who's this Osho character? I've never heard of him. In my mind, I was picturing like a, a Japanese Zen master. So I, I went on the internet and I started reading excerpts from all these different books that Osho had written, and eventually I discovered that Osho is actually the cult leader from the documentary Wild Wild Country. That was the moment that I was like, oh, I, I actually, okay, I really need to watch that documentary because here I was about to buy one of his books because I thought his ideas sounded really interesting. As someone who is fascinated by self-help and who loves to share what he's learned with other people, I find these documentaries about cults rather chilling because... I'm always worried that I am either going to end up being one of these blind followers who gets abused or becoming one of these abusive gurus who goes too far. In some of these cases, such as Wild Wild Country, it's clear that the cult started with a message that the leader truly believed in, a message that was really valuable for a lot of people. And Wild Wild Country is also a fascinating documentary that I highly recommend because you really come away being uncertain about how much the unraveling of the cult was Osho's fault or the fault of some misguided followers, like his personal secretary. And it just grew and grew to the point where they lost touch with reality and a hubristic entitlement basically led them down a path where they started to abuse that power. They started to abuse that control. They started to believe that they were above the law, that they really were gods in their own way. And I can completely see how that would happen. My quest into self-help really is about making myself happier, about increasing my well-being, and about improving the world, helping other people. And sometimes I feel like I really have connected someone with an idea that has really helped them, that was, has improved their life. And, and that feels great. It feels amazing. But at the same time, 
My ego is always lurking behind the scenes, and my ego always wants to get paid. Anything that I do for the sheer good of helping people from a sense of altruism always feeds into my ego saying, well, come on, what's in it for us? My ego wants to take every success that I feel and package it into something that I can use to bolster my sense of value, my sense of worth, often in a hierarchical sense. My ego really wants to put me on a pedestal, put me back on the fictional hierarchy of human value and say, you're better than other people, AJ. You have value that cannot be taken away. And I can see why my ego wants to do that. My ego is just trying to protect me, protect me both physically and protect me psychologically. And part of its schema for protecting me psychologically is to create these (laughs) illusions of identity that are connected to things like success, things like respect, a lot of external validation from other people. And sort of like build all of that into a protective fortress that keeps me safe from a sense of being unlovable, worthless, valueless, nothing. So it's sort of a constant struggle to learn new facts that I really think are valuable and to try to share them with people, and then to keep my ego in check, and every time I have some kind of success, to recognize that that doesn't make me any better than the people I'm trying to help. That doesn't even make me any better than I was before, per se. It doesn't actually change my value in any way. I kind of just look at it more as fulfilling my potential, a potential that I always had, a potential that I believe everybody has a kind of equal potential that we all share in, but a potential that none of us needs to use. Intellectually, I don't believe that we actually need to achieve anything in order to be valuable, lovable humans. We are already all enough exactly the way we are. However, my ego And my emotions, which are connected to shame, and my upbringing, which was based on our culture of hierarchy and comparison and shame, all of those forces are insidiously undermining what I intellectually know to be true, which is that we are all of equal value. But I still emotionally want to feel the rush of being better than people, of of being famous, of being the best. So I can see that the more you succeed at helping people, the greater danger you are in of losing this battle with your ego. The more you surround yourself with people that think that your ideas are brilliant and who want to follow you and who, who, who hold you above themselves, the harder it is to keep your sense of equality. In some cases, though, it doesn't seem like the cult begins from a well-meaning place. Nexium, for example, if you look at its founder, Keith Raniere, before he founded Nexium, he was already running a money-making pyramid scheme. Keith Raniere has often billed himself as the smartest man in the world, with one of the highest IQs, supposedly. And it seems that he was just looking for a way to elevate himself and create yet another multi-level marketing scheme based on some kind of self-help paradigm. 
And by the sounds of it, I've never taken any Nexium courses, though I would. I would take any course. I'm 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 open to taking any crazy personal betterment course. I would try it at least once, no matter what it is, because I just want to experience as many different viewpoints as I can. And if it's total bullshit, then I hope that I will be able to recognize it as such. But from what I've read and heard on the Uncovered podcast about Nexium, it seems like he cobbled together a bunch of self-help ideas that were already out there, some of which I think are quite true and smart, and created his own version of things and basically just gave it different names. It doesn't feel like he gathered these ideas because he really was trying to make the world a better place. It seems like it was always designed to get him rich and to give him the kind of prestige, value, and superiority that he craved. Another reason I suspect this is that built right into the fabric of Nexium was an inherently hierarchical structure. Right from the very beginning, he changed his own name to Vanguard. I think if you are interested in self-help or interested in teaching self-help, one of the things you should absolutely look out for is changing your name. I know a lot of people do this in Buddhism and other religions, but frankly, the more you can stay grounded in your totally mundane, pedestrian human self, the less likely it is that you are going to elevate yourself into some kind of deity or some kind of prophet. Another thing that Nexium did right off the bat was that they created these outfits, these sashes that people wore of different colors that showed what rank they had within the fake hierarchy that Keith Raniere had developed. Not only that, but they had these handshakes, these secret handshakes that they had to do, and the people who were higher up did a certain kind of handshake, and the people who were lower down did a different kind of handshake. All of these things, changing his name, creating this colored sash system, and these handshakes codified hierarchy, superiority and inferiority, power and control, right into the very fabric of whatever ideas it was that he was hawking. Just as important as the ideas was the hierarchy. That's another thing to always look out for when you are getting into self-help or when you are interested in teaching self-help. Anytime you create hierarchy, you are in danger of creating a shame environment in which some people appear to have more value than others, which undermines equality. Another thing to look out for is the creation of proprietary language. Anytime you take a concept and create a new term for it, it's like you're creating a secret language that creates a difference between you, the inside circle, the chosen people, the, the smart ones, and everybody else in the world. It's also a very clever way to make money because it makes all of these ideas seem new and fresh, like as if you had invented them, if they have a different name that no one's ever heard before. That being said, there's also a branding angle that makes sense. If you want someone to remember a great life-changing idea, it helps to be able to concoct a very simple way for them to remember it, a, a buzzword, a catchphrase, etc. And in fact, I am already guilty of this. I've been using the phrase micro-ideologies, which I think I invented, to describe what is essentially, in other people's parlance, a mental model. 
However, in my defense, I like having ideology right there in the title so that you know as you say it that it's just a belief. I guess mental model kind of achieves the same thing. A mental model isn't saying it's a, it's a truth. It's just a kind of model with which to filter your thinking through. But for me, calling it a micro-ideology is just so clear that this is a belief, this isn't 100% true, this is something I am choosing to buy into, and it's small. It's not an overarching belief system. It's just one little idea. That being said, it's a slippery slope. Maybe I'm going to trademark micro-ideologies, and I'm going to come up with all these other buzzwords that just mean things that I've stolen from Brene Brown or other smarter people than me. In a way, it's about power. It's about how much power do you as a leader or a teacher create for yourself and hoard, and how much power do you give to the people that you are trying to teach or to your quote-unquote followers. I think the more autonomy and power that you can give to anyone who is coming to you and looking up to you is the best way to help empower that person, and the best way to keep yourself grounded. The problem is that the psychology of some of the people who are following these leaders is not helping to keep them grounded. Because in a way, I think what makes a cult so appealing is that you don't have to think. It's, it's a way to mask the incredible uncertainty of life by deciding that this person is going to lead me and they have all the answers. You're taking the responsibility off of yourself and essentially allowing yourself to become a bit of a child again. I really do think a cult recreates a kind of parent-child relationship. And it's no wonder that many cult leaders are called father or mother. And their, their followers are often called their children, because that really is the psychology. I don't feel comfortable with having to make decisions in the world because it's so complicated, it's so scary, it's, there's so much uncertainty, there's so much possibility for mistakes and for wrongdoing, that I would just rather abdicate that responsibility to someone else who I believe has more intelligence, who has more inherent value and power. And so... In order for that abdication of power and responsibility to work, in order to feel that sense that you are in good hands, you have to believe that that person is better than you. And that, that innately plays right into the hierarchy and power imbalance that leads to the abuse of power that seems to almost be inevitable in any cult. I would be wary of any belief system that doesn't promote free thinking that doesn't promote personal autonomy. It's almost like, for me, it's more important to teach people how to think for themselves than it is to teach people what they should be thinking. The further I get on my journey of self-discovery and self-help and personal betterment, or whatever you want to call it, the more I realize how totally subjective everything is. So... Any kind of thought pattern that claims to have the answers 
is something I am inherently skeptical of. With my message about shame, my real goal is about freeing people so that they no longer feel pressure to follow the viewpoints of other people, that they have the autonomy and the freedom to realize that in this world of subjective viewpoints, it's up to them to determine what is true for them. So for me, the only kind of cult that I could really get behind is one that has a plurality of viewpoints. Whatever cult it is that helps wake you up from following somebody else's viewpoint and finding your own, even if it is completely different than everyone else within that cult, that to me would be the only kind of indoctrination that I could get behind. One that frees you to be you exactly the way you are. Which isn't to say that you don't have potential for growth and room to improve and and healthy accomplishments and achievements that you could strive for. It, It just says that all of those things have to come from you. You have to be the driver, the creator, and the auditor of all of those ideas. And you can't abdicate that responsibility to anyone else. Discovering that you have to take complete responsibility for your own life is, it's scary at times because every mistake falls squarely onto you. You can't blame anyone else. But at the same time, there's this incredible liberation that comes from realizing that the only opinion that really matters about who made a mistake and what is right and what is wrong is your own. At the end of the day, you are the one that gets to decide what is important to you, what is valuable to you, and how much you value yourself. It's sort of like a one-person cult, and you are both the leader and the follower of that cult. And you try to make rules for that cult that work and that are smart and that are helpful and that make sense. And as the follower, you try to follow those rules as best you can, even when they're difficult. And when you're able to make great rules that you believe in and follow them, that's when you are living with integrity. That's when you are living a life of intention. And that is when you are outside of the shame of being controlled by the ideas or the opinions of anyone else. 